WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. It is Sunday, January 14th, 2024. I am Rob Dreesline. Very happy to be with you for the next one hour. We're here until 6 o'clock. I've got a couple guests that will be calling in. A lot of headlines brewing this week. There's a lot going on considering it's the dead of winter out there. Uh, Yeah, you may have heard it's cold. Uh, We've spent the better part of really two months whining about how warm it is and how uh, bad it is for the ice. Well, uh, we're making up for lost time quickly, I would dare say. Uh, we got to be making a (laughs) couple, two, three inches of ice a day uh, with this kind of cold, right, where uh, the the daytime high is below zero. Uh, Yeah, we're, we're getting good ice out there. We didn't get much snow. You know, that snow is bad for ice. So, you know, that's good news also. Uh, I know there's folks that like some snow for a lot of uh, outdoor recreational activities. Uh, we'll probably get that eventually, but it would be nice if we can uh, yeah, build a bunch of ice here this week, have some good ice fishing conditions, and then uh, then perhaps get some snow on top of that. You know, the, all this cold, it also kills the emerald ash borers. I believe some of the foresters will tell you it's good to kill the EAB larvae out there. Uh, it doesn't necessarily wipe them out, but might help set them back so that we uh, don't kill as many of our ash trees across the state. I was just reading uh, how bad that is in Wisconsin, and we've got it here, uh, and not quite as bad as I believe to our, as our neighbor to the east. Uh, we're going to talk more ice fishing here in 10 minutes or so. Joel Nelson is going to call in. He's a frequent uh, outdoor news contributor. That's my day job. I'm the editor, managing editor of uh, the outdoor news publications based here out of the Twin Cities. Uh, but uh, Joel, great guy. He's also a hardcore turkey hunter. And you know, back in the day, this used to be when you had to apply for a turkey permit. Uh, you know, mid January, we talk a lot about getting starting to think ahead for uh, for turkey season. But it's still uh, just three months away. So maybe I'll, I'll squeeze in a turkey question with Joel. Uh, we're also going to have a gal, Colleen O'Connor Toberman, give us a quick buzz. We're going to talk to her a little bit about uh, her. She's with a group called Friends of the Mississippi River. Uh, they are hosting some meetings in a bunch of river towns here to uh, help explain what is in this Asian carp management plan that the DNR will be unveiling this week. The legislature gave them a deadline of January 14th, which uh, WCCO has learned is tomorrow, uh, and uh, it's it's a holiday. So presumably they're going to get another day, but I think they're going to have probably some sort of media press conference this week about the plan. Then the DNR roundtable is this Friday the 19th. Uh, they will be talking about that plan a lot. We'll see what's in it, see if there's some actionable items in it that uh, will help uh, prevent uh, Asian carp, the four species, uh, from continuing to move up the Mississippi River and per- potentially threatening uh, our waters and uh, and even people, right, with these things uh, jumping out of the water like they do. So we're going we're gonna to talk to Colleen about that a little bit, about these meetings that are coming up. Uh, like I said, then we've got this roundtable next, or this coming Friday, so I'll probably spend quite a bit of time on next Sunday show talking about some of the things, some of the headlines that come out of that uh, that annual uh, event. It's in uh, Bloomington this year. Uh, I've got uh, a couple topics to discuss, maybe before we get to our first guest. Uh, first of all, I wrote up a quick little story on Thursday, and this was an interesting one. We got a note, it was a very short press release from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service saying that they were looking for some assistance, they were looking for help uh, from the public involving 12 dead swans out in Stevens County. Stevens County is in western Western Minnesota. Morris is the county seat, uh, U of M Morris. A lot of folks, of course, familiar with that school. 
I don't know, it's maybe the 20 miles from the South Dakota border. And uh, the, the release just said uh, that there's, there's 12 dead swans uh, that were killed, I think, December 16th and 17th. And the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was looking for any insight, uh, any tips from the public on how it happened. And that, that was what I just told you. That was pretty much it. And I, you know, I had a bunch of other questions. Uh, first of all, what kind of swans were they? We've got two wild species of swans uh, that come through Minnesota. The, the trumpeter swans, of course, which are basically almost like a resonant bird here, right? Uh, that's what folks are seeing all over the place. They were they were reintroduced into the state. A massive, massive success story. In my mind, almost too successful. Uh, then we've got tundra swans that migrate over Minnesota uh, in the fall. And they came through pretty late this year because of that late fall, that uh, that I late winter that I alluded to earlier. Now, that said, that the, the tundra swans usually show up on the Mississippi River on the state's eastern edge. I think occasionally you'd get maybe a few tundra swans stopping, like at Lake Christina, maybe a few other water bodies. But I, I, I don't think you'd find tundra swans in western Minnesota. And then we've got these invasive mute swans uh, that are pretty rare. If you see one, you're supposed to alert the DNR, and they'll come take care of it because they are an exotic pest. So, I mean, that was my first question. What kind of swans were they? And then, you know, does, does the Fish and Wildlife Service have the birds uh, in its possession uh, were they? Uh, you know, do we do we have any insight into how they were killed? Uh, were, were, there, were there hunters that mistook them for snow geese, which is inexcusable, but has happened sometimes in the past? Uh, and I, I emailed the uh, the public information officer on the on the press release. I also emailed the uh, the special agent whose name was on at the bottom of the press release. The the person who was looking for tips from the public. And just, you know, a few simple questions like that. And I got a, 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 a prompt response, I appreciate it, from this PIO who said, uh, Rob, I can't tell you anything else What's other than what's in the release. And I thought, well, that, that's a little odd. You can't even tell me what species of swans they are? I mean, what what's with the double secret probation here? Uh, and, and also, why did this release come out or this request for help from the public come out a month after these swans were poached? Uh, and, and believe me. I'm all in. Whenever law enforcement is looking for help and finding perps uh, responsible for killing any you know wild game or, or or non-game birds in this case or eagles, I'm all over it. I'm I'm more than helpful. That you know let's let's help law enforcement catch these people responsible for it. Uh, but it's the whole thing just seems a little bit odd. Uh, why why all the secrecy? And that, that that's something I've been dealing with with the feds more and more, especially in D.C. Uh, it's really hard to get information out of uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service, especially in Washington, D.C. It started under the Trump administration. It's always, it seems like I've been doing this for 30 years. It seems like it's gotten worse over the years. And it, it got real bad in D.C. under Trump, and it has not gotten any better under Biden, just to be you know nonpartisan here. Uh, the local folks generally are, are better with the Fish and Wildlife Service. And the Minnesota DNR are you know, pretty good. And, in fact, I contacted you know, a source with the Minnesota DNR enforcement and said, do you guys know anything about these swans? And, and uh, they didn't know anything about the case either. So, anyway, I, a lot of background there. Bottom line, if folks do know anything, if you heard anything about these swans that were poached out in Stevens County, a dozen of them, uh, you can contact the Fish and Wildlife Service, contact a special agent. I guess his name is Andrew Daber. And it's just Andrew underscore Daber, D-A-I-B-E-R at F-W-S dot gov. Andrew underscore Daber, D-A-I-B-E-R at F-W-S dot gov. Uh, by all means, if you have any details on what happened 
with this poaching incident out in western Minnesota involving a bunch of swans, well, the Fish and Wildlife Service is looking for your help. So with that, I think I'll get in a break. We'll get back to uh, talking good old hook and bullet with uh, my friend Joel Nelson. I'm Rob Dreesline, and you're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. It is 518 on this Sunday, January 14th, 2024. I want to talk ice fishing and what's going on out there with a longtime friend of mine, a very avid outdoors man, Mr. Joel Nelson. Joel, are you with me? Yeah, I've got you. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. How are you doing, my friend? I haven't talked to you in a while. I'm doing great. I'm not uh, I'm not as cold as I thought I'd be. I think my uh, winter heater's kicking in. It's a good thing. Good. Well, yeah, those heaters are uh, after not being used, folks not even getting out on the ice. Yeah, it's we're we're all in on good old-fashioned traditional cold weather ice fishing and other activities here in Minnesota. Uh what do you make of it, Joel? Uh, we got to be building ice quickly uh, in these kind of conditions. Uh, it looks like we're going to yeah. have this weather for about a week, and that should be enough, I would think, to lock things up pretty good, shouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, it's just been such a weird year. Uh, I was talking to a buddy who had been fishing up near the, uh, you know, Detroit Lakes, Park Rapids area north, and they've got 10, 12 inches and some light SUVs and uh, cars are out onto the ice. And then south central Minnesota, kind of down where I'm at, um, we just locked up like a, a skim uh, icing less than a week ago. So, uh, yeah, we've got uh, after this week. It'll it'll be more than plenty to creep out and uh, do some fishing. Probably even at the uh, you know middle part of the week, you'll be able to go out with a spud bar, check some ice, and, and probably catch some fish. Yeah, and what do you make of that? I, these fish they got to be snapping right when 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 so called early season is in mid January. Uh, they haven't haven't had much pressure, and they're going to be willing to to jump on a hook. I think it's going to be really good. Yeah, I mean, there's, like you said, they've had a break of all breaks. Uh, you know, fall, uh, not a lot of anglers are really out there in the boats late during deer season. So they've really had two to three months of not many people picking on them. And I'm going to be heading shallow looking for some green weeds, and I expect to find them still standing because that light should have penetrated quite well and kept them uh, good and greened up. So I'll be after some panfish first ice. It's going to be a good time. Joel, in this kind of weather, you can make a couple inches of ice a day, can't you? I mean, when yeah. the, the, the yeah. days are so short still. I mean, they're starting to get a little bit longer, but the days are short. The lakes are ve- – they were very cold going into this cold snap. Yeah. I mean, even though there wasn't a lot of ice, the water was cold. And, I mean, when the temperature plunges in these kind of conditions, ice forms quickly. And and, and also the other bonus is there isn't any snow, right? Right. I mean, for most people – kind of northwest of the Driftless area in Minnesota, uh, they didn't get a lot of snow. Now, you get south uh, south central Faribault Lakes area, maybe a little bit east. There's not a ton of lakes in that region. Right. They got just kissed on the edge of it. But for the most part, it's the best kind of conditions you could hope for. Extreme cold, no snow. It's going to really start piling it on, like you said. Yeah, I wonder, you know, the backwaters of the river presumably had some ice and probably got a fair amount of snow. I would be ultra careful. <laughs> messing around that area that might that's my old neck of the woods i yeah it, we we should mention that everybody in wisconsin got absolutely pounded i got a i got a son oh. down in madison and i've got you know buddies in the milwaukee area co-workers in the milwaukee area and i mean they couldn't believe how how much snow they got here this past few days and i fished the backwaters just before christmas and we had anywhere from three to four inches of ice in some of the real shallow areas with no current and uh 
yeah, most of those did melt off and, mm-hmm. and had to restart. So uh, it, it's it's going to be weird. It's going to be tricky. You're going to get some areas that refroze really well and other areas that maybe didn't fully lose it, and you've got some weird stacked ice with snow kind of mixed in, and just got to be real careful in the backwaters like you suggested. Oh, yeah, and you know the other factor on the river is that water levels change uh, dramatically sometimes, <laughs> and uh, you know, I did you stories bet. on that back in my Winona days where people went out on what they thought was good ice, but the, but the, the river dropped, and there'd be you know, a gap sometimes of air between the, the, the water and the ice, and I you know, can't begin to explain how dangerous that is. Be careful on the river, folks. I think back to some of the things I did on the river when I was a kid, and I'm shocked I'm still here. So, <laughs> uh, But are you getting up north, or are you mostly uh, fishing southern Minnesota this year, Joel? I, you know, I've gotten up north for a trip or two, but it's been somewhat limited. You know, uh, at the end of uh, kind of that Christmas season, there's so many shows and different promotional things, and uh, hey, we like traveling and doing those. The St. Paul Ice Show is in early December, and uh Spent a lot of time doing that, and, uh, you know, January is really when a lot of the real good fishing comes online, statewide anyway. So, yeah, we're, we're behind maybe a month, you could say, but uh, for those folks in kind of the northern half of the state, they've been enjoying ice here for a little bit anyway. Joel, I don't want to throw controversy at you out of the blue here, but I'm, I'm going to be at the DNR Roundtable this Friday, January 19th, and I see they are devoting a part of the fisheries section segments to talking about technology and fishing and forward-facing sonar, and that, that's become a pretty hot topic. Uh, I, I imagine it's part of your regimen. I mean, it, it's amazing how much more efficient I think anglers can be using forward-facing sonar. Has that been your experience? 100%, yeah. And, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks we saw a little bit of controversy, like you mentioned, uh, regarding some of that as it related to barotrauma studies that the DNR was doing and some criticism of some of their techniques. But, uh Really, from uh, the way I understand it, they're trying to get a handle on what this means potentially for limits. You know, if you think about the way they set limits, a lot of it had to do with catch-per-unit effort, meaning they were anticipating a lot of anglers would get skunked. And that just doesn't happen as much these days. I'm always amazed when I go out to a lake and I just look out upon it and I say, okay, there's somebody on that weed flat. They're on the tip of the weed flat. These people are on the skinny neck down. These people are in a hole in the weed flat. They've got it so well covered because of technology and they're catching more fish than ever before. Uh, anglers are armed with just better information overall, so maybe the limits and the way they kind of came at them don't apply as they once did. Yeah, I mean, really, that's the only tactic that the DNR has to try to address the fact that anglers are getting so much more efficient using this technology is limits. And, and so I'm glad it's on the DNR's agenda at the roundtable. In my opinion, and not just mine, Al Lindner has brought this up too. The DNR seemed like, like they kind of had their head in the sand on this, so I'm glad it's uh, it's on the the forthcoming agenda. Let, let's talk some fun again. And by the way, I'm Rob Jerisline. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Joel Nelson is with us, uh, chatting a little bit about the fact that we're finally getting some good fishable ice across the state. Joel, the walleye season really only goes about another five weeks. It's hard to believe. Uh, you know, it goes till it's not even the end of February. I think it's the 25th or 26th, something like that. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get some good fishable ice here in the next week. Folks want to get out and take advantage of walleye fishing before that season closes. That's what I'd advise. Go after walleyes the next five, four or five weeks, then focus on panfish maybe after, uh, you know, after, uh, late February, getting into March. How 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 are you going to approach walleye fishing through the hard water here during this wacky winter? 
Yeah, I'll actually be on the lax here coming up uh, sometime in the next week, and I'm going to head straight to the midwinter spots. You know, early ice, you could always count on fish to be in the near shallows just off the edge of that fall feeding pattern where they're up chasing, you know, any kind of bait fish, shiner, shad, depending on the system you're in. But I think we blew right through that, at least the calendar would suggest so. So uh, I'm going to be heading out to the mud. I'm going to be heading out to deeper rock, uh, deeper gravel as it approaches mud edges, and really going to spend a lot of time poking around in the bigger portions of of that structure. So, uh, you know, if you had that favorite kind of tip up, creep out, uh, first 100 yards near shoreline points kind of thing, in 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 your in your uh you know kind of in your wheelhouse maybe this isn't the year you're going to get to attack <laughs> might as might as well head deep right at the outset is going to be my strategy okay yeah uh, head for those midwinter spots uh immediately and uh that's that's where we think the uh, the walleyes might be snapping we got just a minute left here joe before we let you go and I don't know if you heard me earlier in the show, I mentioned that this used to be the time of year we'd get all worked up. We'd be talking about turkey hunting uh, because it was when you had yeah. to get your application in, right, for your for your right. permit. I, I you, you and I probably remember it was even earlier. Wasn't it like late, late November or even oh, December yeah. when you had Absolutely to apply for your, yep. yeah, for your spring yep. permit? And then I think it was under Mark Holson they pushed it back to January. Uh, and now you really don't even have to other than a few uh, what public uh, wildlife management areas, I think. But nonetheless... Hey, you're sitting around. Maybe you don't want to go ice fishing. Good time to practice some calling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I tell you, a lot of people have indoor time now, and uh, if it's uh, in the house and nobody's around, maybe you can get away with it. At least in the car, <laughs> it's a good time to practice the calling. And uh, you know, the other thing I've been doing and having my kids do is it's it's predator time. You know, you get these extreme cold snaps like sure. this. Not not a not a bad time to check out some predator hunts uh, out there as well, and you might be doing the turkey population a favor at the same time. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, the coyote hunting season, right? Is underway, although it's yeah, not absolutely. real fun in, in this kind of cold. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, that. Well, what do we got here? Another another few weeks. It seems like the the hardcore guys usually start to lay off once that breeding season starts to wrap up. Well, and give them a yeah, break. Absolutely, yeah. and. You, in this cold weather, I, I've always found they come to the call quite well, and it's extreme cold, and maybe we'll get a good full moon coming. I haven't looked at the calendar in a while, but, uh, yeah, that's what I'll be trying to do, too, just to squeeze it in between ice fishing trips. Good. And uh, we, we're coming off a great turkey hunt last year. Uh, i got to thank the turkeys and the deer, by the way. That's a silver lining to what's been a, a pretty mild winter going, at least till this weekend, is uh, a good winter to be a turkey or a deer. They're they're entering this toughest part of winter in really good shape, aren't they? Well, hundred percent. Yeah, you've got uh, a number of things going for them. Uh, on top of the lack of snow cover, they can really still get at a lot of that food, especially in the forest floor and scratch for acorns and whatnot. It hasn't been cold, you know, as right. you suggested. So it's 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 really a great situation for them, even if we get extreme cold and extreme snow, which isn't really in the long term forecast. They're just going to have a shorter winter than they're used to having to deal with, and that's always a positive thing for them. No, exactly. Yeah, and I, this time next week, where it looks like we're back to normal. Early the following week, maybe even above normal. So yeah, we got a cold snap here, but uh, lo- looking like it's going to last for a week. We don't have a ton of snow, so a, a fairly easy winter for the wildlife. Joel, hey, thanks for uh, calling in, spending a little time with me. It's good to catch up, and we'll uh, well, probably get you back on maybe uh, around the when the turkey season kicks off. How's that sound? That sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. Joel, thanks a lot. Joel Nelson Outdoors. Have a have a great week ahead, my friend. All right, you too, Rob. See ya. That was Joel Nelson. I appreciate him checking in with us. I think we will grab ourselves a little break here. When we return, we are going to talk 
with uh, someone from Friends of the Mississippi River about some upcoming public meetings going on in some river towns, including St. Paul. That's a big river town uh, involving the uh, this Asian carp issue. So don't go away. More WCCO Outdoors after these messages. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this Sunday, January 14th, 2024. I am Rob Dreesline. I'm the managing editor of a little newspaper called Outdoor News, and I'll be with you till the top of the hour. Uh, hey, I've got a special guest who's joining us now, first time on the broadcast with us. We're going to talk a little bit about some special meetings going on later this month involving invasive carp coming up the Mississippi River. Her name is Colleen O'Connor-Toberman. She's the Land Use and Planning Program Director for St. Paul-based Friends of the Mississippi River. Colleen, thanks a lot for jumping into the broadcast. Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, how long have you been there? What's your background? Tell me a little bit about yourself. I joined FMR about five years ago, and I brought my background in community organizing, advocacy, and policy related to development issues, land use, and planning. Are you from Minnesota originally, or where where are you from, Colleen? I am. I grew up in the Twin Cities, and I live in Minneapolis now. I'm an old river rat myself. I grew up, I went to high school and middle school down in the Trumpelow area, and then spent uh, several years, my first job as a journalist at the Winona Daily News. So I love the Mississippi River, and I take it kind of personal that we've got silver carp jumping around Pool 6 these days. Mm-hmm. That's, those are my home waters. Asian carp, invasive carp has been a big uh, focus for, for your organization. I know why, but why don't you explain that to listeners, why that's why that's so important? Sure. So invasive carp, which are four different species of carp that were imported into the U.S., have you know escaped in the Mississippi River, been working their way up towards Minnesota since the 80s. And, you know, there are a lot of invasive species that harm our ecosystems, have detrimental effects here. But what makes uh, these species, and particularly silver carp, unique is the way that they jump and hit boaters. And so not only are they decimating fisheries, eating everything in sight and out-competing native fish, but you can't even safely go on the water to go fishing, much less catch a healthy native game fish. And so that's what concerns us particularly about silver carp. You know, they can weigh 25 pounds, 40 pounds or more. And if they jump out of the water, every carp biologist I've talked to has a story about getting a black eye or broken nose or oh, wow. bruise from these fish. And I don't want to go boating in that kind of water. <laughs> I had not heard those stories. I mean, I've obviously seen the pictures and the video, like on the Illinois River, where they're they're jumping like mad. I hadn't heard stories about uh, biologists getting black eye from them. And it's, it's, it's frankly, it's not funny. I mean, someone could get really hurt, I suppose, ca- catching one of these, you know, five, 10 pound fish uh, in the face. My greater issue is the, you know, the ecological damage they, they bring onto, you know, our, our important rivers. And I, and I always like to point out, Colleen, common carp are also invasive. In mm-hmm. many ways, there are most destructive invasive species in a lot of waterways in Minnesota. And I, and I always like to point that out that the European are common carp has been a problem in our waterways for like a century and we don't need more of them uh, via silver carp, big carp, grass and, and black carp. We should point out, I, I've talked about this a lot on the radio show the past couple months, they're starting to hit critical mass, aren't they? We took over 400 of them, what, in, in early December? 
Yes. Yeah. The Minnesota DNR caught over 400 carp, mostly silver carp, in Pool 6, as you mentioned earlier, uh, just in recent weeks. And that's by far the highest number of invasive carp that have ever been caught in Minnesota's waters. It's on the heels of a couple of big catches last spring, also in the same part of the river. And that has us really concerned that there might be more fish here than we've ever seen before. And we have no way of knowing how many there actually are and whether or not we're effectively catching and removing them. So your organization, Friends of the Mississippi River, as well as the Lake Pepin Legacy Alliance, are co-hosting what you're calling some community action meetings later this month in uh, in three uh, communities along the river uh, to talk about uh, this issue and try to drill into what the Minnesota DNR is supposed to be unveiling, its invasive carp action plan this coming week. Why are you folks hosting these meetings? Why Why is this necessary? We really think it's important for the community to get to hear about the action plan, get to hear from the DNR about what it is that they're going to do to protect Minnesota's waters. You know, we have increasing numbers of invasive carp here, but our rivers are nowhere near lost. Uh, This fight is nowhere near over. We have a lot of opportunities to stop them before they really take over in in numbers that would allow them to reproduce. So we want the DNR to come share that work with the public. And they didn't have a plan to do a broader community engagement uh, to explain their work. And so we said, well, if we co-host some community meetings, will you come tell the public about what you're planning to do and what next steps you're going to be taking? It's also an opportunity for folks to get educated a little bit more about where these fish are, what to do if you catch one, uh, why we're concerned about them, So people will get to learn sort of the basics of invasive carp as well as what we should be asking the state to do next. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. I am Rob Dreesline. We're spending some time with Colleen O'Connor Toberman from Friends of the Mississippi River about some upcoming meetings that her organization, as well as some other nonprofits, will be hosting on three Mississippi River communities later this month. And we should uh, explain where they're going to be quickly, Colleen. I'll knock that out. January 24th, Red Wing, the Anderson Center. January 30th, St. Paul. There'll be a virtual meeting via Zoom as well as a live meeting at the St. Paul Yacht Club. And then February 1st in Winona, my old neck of the woods, at the Marine Art Museum. All three of those meetings run from 5 to 7 p.m., And I presume you're hoping to get some big crowds at those meetings, Colleen. We are. And we need people to register in advance so we know how many uh, refreshments to bring. We know to expect you. We can send you the link if you're joining the live stream. So please do that at fmr.org slash events to let us know to expect you. And that way we can keep in touch with you before the event. fmr.org. Then click events. I want to also drill into a little bit. You told me on the record when we talked last week, your organization has been mildly disappointed with the DNR, not advocating for what the barrier at Pool 5 and and maybe not being as frontal on the Asian carp issue as you would prefer. Is that an accurate uh, description of where your organization falls? That is accurate. You know, we, along with our colleagues in the Stop Carp Coalition, started asking the DNR to update its action plan in 2020. And here it is in 2024, and we're just starting to see it. In the meantime, we have all this new research coming out about things like a barrier and where it would be effective, how it would work. And the DNR has declined to implement that research, saying that they need to evaluate it for their action plan first. And we just feel like they have spent far too long evaluating and planning when they should be acting. And the big carp catches that we've had in the recent months suggests to me that we're running out of time and we don't have any more time to sit around planning. We need them to act. 
I would add that the reason they've got this CARP plan coming out now is because the legislature demanded it, right, during the, during the last legislative session. And I, I think you would agree. I see some distinction between some of the field people working on the carp issue. I think they're out there busting their butts, working really hard, trying to catch these fish. For sure. Uh, they've joined me on this show. They've been very engaging. I, I appreciate, you know, the, the rank and file working hard on this. My beef has been more with uh, DNR leadership, mm-hmm. uh, where this just does not seem to be a priority in terms of, you know, their advocacy uh, for the barrier or, or any other aggressive measures at the state legislature. Is that you agree with that characterization? Absolutely. The invasive carp staff that we have at the DNR, the biologists, they do work really hard and their workloads are really high and their leadership has not given them the support they need. They have not brought a sense of urgency to this and we need to see that change. If if the carp get through on this administration's watch, they're going to have a hard time living that down. Colleen, I've been known to play devil's advocate now and then, and so I'm going to do that with you here for a moment. Do you think it's too late for a carp barrier at Lock and Dam 5 to get one implemented to save Lake Pepin and other upstream waters from uh, the advance of silver and big head carp? You know, that would be the first part of my question. B, even if it's not too late, will this carp barrier work? Uh, you know, that's been some of the pushback I hear, you know, from the DNR, sometimes off the record, that uh, it would be very expensive to construct this thing, and we're not even sure it will work. What's your take on that? Well, first of all, Rob, it's not too late, uh, but we do have to act right now. We have this increasingly narrow window of time, but it's enough. We still don't think that carp are reproducing in Minnesota. We don't know when we'll meet that threshold, but we still have a little bit of time. And, you know, a deterrent is not a silver bullet. It will not prevent every single carp from passing upstream. But the research shows and tests show in other parts of other river systems that these systems might prevent 95, 99% of carp. And that's really important. It's a numbers game. The fewer carp that are upstream, the better we can prevent them from reproducing in those areas and really taking over. It's when you hit reproduction that you've really lost the battle. And I would much rather try something that has been shown in research and a test to work, then try nothing at all. The cost that we will spend managing a carp problem, trying to remove them later, the economic damage to riverfront towns, marinas, the recreation industry, that's far more expensive than what a deterrent will cost. And I would much rather err on the side of acting with a sense of urgency then waiting for a certainty that doesn't exist. What a deterrent will do is buy us time, many, many years, hopefully, for better alternatives to be available. You know, other states have not had that kind of time before the carp got here. They didn't have deterrents. They didn't have much of anything in their toolbox, and we do. And it would be silly of us to not use every tool that we have and use the latest and greatest research, which was funded by the state of Minnesota and should be put into practice. Uh, some really solid points there. And yeah, I think even if you do, even if 5% of them do get through, I think we've, we're seeing some techniques with some of this tagging where we can go mm-hmm. in and maybe pursue and get the ones that do get through uh, so that we can prevent this critical mass kind of reproduction thing from occurring in Minnesota waters. And like you mm-hmm. say, it may be inevitable, but maybe we can push it back 
10, 15, 20 years or more until uh, maybe some biological techniques or something come along to uh, to eliminate these things. Exactly. Uh, well, anyway, one more time, I, w- I want to put in one last plug. The meetings are January 24th, 30th, and February 1st in Red Wing, St. Paul, and Winona. Uh, all three meetings run from 5 to 7 p.m. And if folks want to register, they can go to, I'll let you remind listeners. FMR.org and click the event button at the top of the page. Perfect. I hope you get good crowds. I appreciate your organizations hosting these meetings, Colleen. And uh, we're going to have a reporter there. And of course, uh, we're also going to learn more at the uh, DNR Roundtable next week, where we will see what's in the DNR's invasive carp plan. Thanks, Rob. Thanks a lot for joining me. Have a great week ahead. You too. That was Colleen O'Connor Toberman from Friends of the Mississippi River. We appreciate her joining us. Let's get in a break. More of WCCO Outdoors after these messages. Final segment, everybody, of this week's installment of WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I'm Rob Jerislein. Thank you for spending the past hour with me. I sure enjoy knocking this broadcast out every week, talking about some of the big outdoor topics cooking out there and looking forward to uh, the upcoming weeks. As uh, as the days continue to get longer, we've got some good ice. We're going to have good ice fishing. And uh, you know, there's not a lot of hunting left, right? There's uh, rabbit and squirrel hunting pretty much till the end of February, although, uh, as Joel Nelson pointed out, a little bit of predator hunting still uh, as guys go out and chase red fox as well as coyotes. So there's uh, there's some of that action happening, too. Uh, we've got, uh, like I say, the DNR Roundtable coming up uh, this Sunday. Or I'm sorry, this Friday, uh, the 19th. And I will have uh, Rick Hansen will join me next week. Rick is a legislator from South St. Paul. Uh, and he's, uh, what is he, the chair of the House Environment and Natural Resources Committee, I believe, uh, and he'll be at the roundtable, and we'll debrief with him a little bit, as well as maybe look ahead to what he thinks some of the priorities are for the 2024 legislative session, which is less than a month away now, I believe. I think it gets going in mid-February, uh, and we'll uh, we'll get Rick's take on that a little bit. A couple uh, final thoughts before we get going. Uh, I, I don't think I talked about this last week. The DNR issued a press release. They got a bunch of internships. If you're a young person out there uh, in college looking for a career in natural resources or just considering it. Uh, They've got like 200 internships available. You go to uh, the DNR website, mndnr.gov, and then go into the news releases. You'll see all the details, how you can uh, uh, – there's a link, right, where you can can, uh, find some of these these internships if that interests you. Uh, So there's a shameless plug helping the DNR out a little bit. Uh, We need more young people getting involved in natural resources careers. So I wanted to mention that quickly. In my column this week, I wrote a little bit, I was grousing a little bit about non-resident fees. And this is something that's been around forever. It's something I've been grousing about. Uh, people from Minnesota who like to go out west hunting have been upset about this. But it's it's really gotten, gotten almost absurd. Uh, some of these fees in other states, I was trading some emails and some phone calls with Kurt Wells. He's the editor of Bowhunter Magazine, editor-at-large. He used to be the Dakota's columnist for me at Outdoor News, but I've stayed in touch with Kurt, great guy. Uh, and he was talking, he was saying, Rob, if you looked at some of these non-resident fees out in Wyoming, where you know you got elk and mule deer and pronghorn running around on public lands, right? They, they wouldn't exist if not for all these federally managed lands that our federal tax dollars pay for. But because we're not residents out there, we have to pay non-resident fees. And and some of these fees now, like there, there's what they call special draws, where you can kind of up your odds and pay and pay more 
for the for the privilege of trying to increase your odds for some of these draws. But I mean, some of them now are like it's like two grand for a special draw elk license, and you know, there's a very good chance you won't get drawn. Uh, there's and and you know. Some of the you you pay all of it if you are drawn, so it's not like you're you're losing that money. But the increases from a year ago are in the neighborhood of like fifty three percent, eighty percent. I think one almost doubled in price. Uh, there, there's there. We talk so much about how there aren't enough hunters these days, and that we're losing hunters, and that that's affecting license uh, revenues for natural resources agencies. I tell you what, you wouldn't know it by how willing these states are able to increase their non-resident fees. They clearly are getting way more applicants than they have tags. And until that evens out, I guess there's no incentive for them to decrease uh, the amount uh, that they're charging non-residents in these western states. I guess that's what they call supply and demand, and and I need to uh, get over it. But uh, I definitely don't think it's helping the common hunter out there, and I don't think it's helping uh, the future of these sports when uh, you know someone... It takes forever to get drawn, and then if you do get drawn, it costs a lot to go out and participate. I'll be a little more upbeat next week. How's that sound? Thanks for tuning in. Rob Dreesline, WCCO Outdoors.